Gresham College presents The Folly of Value at Risk by Avinash Persaud, Mercer School Memorial Professor of Commerce. Thank you very much, John. Good evening, everyone. Somewhere along the way, finance theory made a wrong turning and has ended up in an intellectual cul-de-sac. Today, modern finance elegantly describes a world that does not exist. It assumes that investors behave independently when we know they have strategic behavior that's rife and herds are common. It assumes that investors' appetite for risk is very different between individuals, but fixed across time. When it appears that investor risk appetite is indeed similar between people and time varying. It assumes that market participants have an independent notion of value, when valuation is, of course, highly uncertain, often self-fulfilling, and at times indeterminate. Of course, economists like myself have made a profession out of faulty assumptions. We like to argue, or is it hope, that precision in assumptions only matters if it's going to change the conclusions. And therefore, it is quite disturbing that if we were to do away with these assumptions and focus on what we do know about finance, we find that the conclusions are quite perverse. Namely, that the modern practice of financial risk management does not reduce risks and may even add to market instability. It is certainly the case that despite developments that have been kind to the precepts of modern finance, less regulation, more information, more adherence to quantitative financial risk management, the financial world is not markedly safer than before. Across a broad range, a broad sweep of time, the number of currency crises appear to be on a rising trend. In this chart, Barry Eichengreen calculates the number of times currencies have come under intense pressure in developed and developing countries across the last century. Using more high-frequency data, more up-to-date data, the amount of volatility across the largest equity markets appears to be on a rising trend as well. This chart shows a number of days in a quarter that the US, Japanese, and UK markets have moved by more than 2%, the number of 2% days. But is volatility a problem? I am not of the opinion that all volatility is bad. Indeed, it's a prerequisite for a market economy. But it needs to be of manageable proportions, and it needs to be managed by those who can. One measure of whether volatility is of manageable proportions is whether or not it is so high that it is an obstacle to investment and borrowing. Now, there's little evidence that for the largest companies and the richest countries that this is so. But there is evidence that volatile markets are not good at providing a flow of funds to emerging companies or emerging countries. And remember, in the long run, that's where global growth will be coming from. 
These borrowers have to depend more on the fickleness of bank finance whenever and wherever it's available. Emerging countries today represent well over two-thirds of the world's population, about a third of the world's GDP, and only about 6% of the world's market cap. Some of you have heard me talk about the role of modern risk management systems in creating risks before. What I'd like to do today is two new things. First, I want to show some empirical evidence for my heretical claims. And I want to use as evidence to identify what is wrong with modern financial risk management and to ground a new framework for thinking about financial risk. Modern finance teaching tells investors to do three things. First, we must define financial instruments like stocks and bonds and equities by their average returns, their volatility, and covariance. Volatility of individual instruments and their covariance are key to the risks of a portfolio. Covariance is the degree of co-movement of two instruments when they vary from their average. A high positive number means that the two, two stocks say, uh, two, two say move away from the average level in the same direction at the same time. And when it comes to picking your investment portfolio, high covariance is a bad thing. It's equivalent of putting all your eggs in the same basket before you go on a long, bumpy journey. The second thing investors are supposed to do is to find the optimal portfolio by picking instruments that as a group have high average returns, low volatility, and low covariance. And the third thing that they're supposed to do is to manage their selected portfolio within a risk budget. If volatilities and covariances rise, risks rise. If the risk budget is breached, Investors are required to reduce risk by selling volatile or highly correlated instruments. There's an aura of science about all of this, and economics in general, and finance in particular, have always been desperate to be counted amongst the harder sciences, at times too desperate. It should be no surprise that Adam Smith, the father of modern economics, was born just four years before the death of Sir Isaac Newton, who casts a long shadow over the development of economics. Let us now look at what happens in practice. Because of the need to compare on a like-for-like -like basis, fund managers generally group the portfolios they manage into three categories of low, medium, and high risk. Most company pension schemes, perhaps your own pension scheme, often ask employees to tick which bucket they want to be in. Of course, as John Yuji and his colleague Alan Brown never tire of pointing out, Risk is being pretty poorly defined here. Risk should relate to the likelihood that your investments will not meet your needs. But it most often refers in public life to volatility relative to the performance of some broad stock index. A 59-year-old in the UK with her life savings in a so-called low-risk index tracker fund would have found that the value of her pension that she could draw for the rest of her life would have almost halved within the first six months of this year. Not exactly low risk. Leaving this aside for the moment, let us imagine that we're all fund managers in the medium risk category, typically defined. 
Now speak to uh, Charlotte, I saw her earlier today, or any executive at Reuters or former executives at Tellurate and Knight Ridder, and they'll tell you that financial data today has become a commodity. So we all have five or more years of financial data on returns, volatilities, and covariances for a similar universe of financial instruments. Well, given a similar risk budget and a similar universe of instruments and similar data, our optimized portfolio will be similar, if not the same, which would be fine initially because new money is being put to work all the time, so the assets in our portfolio would be appreciating as this new money flows in, perhaps outperforming, adding to our confidence that we've made the right bets. The problem is that the process of investors identifying and then selecting the same optimal investment portfolio changes its nature. The assets in the portfolio will no longer be high return, low volatility, and low covariance assets, but the precise opposite. Because we've all bought them in the search of high-pass returns, they will become overvalued assets, incapable of outperforming others in the long run and vulnerable to bad news. When bad news strikes one of the assets in our portfolio that we've overweighted, and it falls in a volatile manner, we will quickly overstep our risk budget. As a result, we'll have to reduce risk by selling this asset with other assets in the portfolio. These are assets that we initially chose because they were uncorrelated, but that they will now become correlated as we sell them together. When price declines bring out more sellers and not bargain hunters, volatility rises further. The rise in volatility and covariance causes a further breach of risk budgets and more selling. The portfolio selected for its history of high returns, low volatility, low covariance, has convulsed into a portfolio of negative returns, high volatility, and high covariance. Instead of feeling smugly confident of our scientific method, we now feel a bit daft. It's also a delicious paradox. The act of observing an area of financial safety made it risky. This is not such a delicious paradox for those financial academics or risk consultants or risk managers who don't feel energized by this intellectual challenge but feel a bit threatened. A colleague passed on a paper written by a Californian academic the other day who is also the author of a popular handbook on how to apply the standard mean variance and value at risk approaches I have just described. Now, while he forgot to add me to his mailing list, his paper singles out my ideas for criticism and argues that the world is indeed a safer place as a result of these technologies. Technologies, I gather, he sells in his consultancy. Now, for his sake, let us go through, uh, let us go beyond the hypothetical and look at some real examples. Let me take this opportunity to thank Natalia alvarez Grijalba for helping me with the empirical work I'm about to show you. Natalia is uh, heading off to Greece next few years, and my colleagues and I will miss her work much. This is the covariance matrix of currencies in the summer of 1995. 
I know it's a bit intimidating, and I promise to explain it uh, and then color it to make it more easy. The markets here are grouped into geographical regions running from left to right, European, Latin American, and Asian markets. I've also added a line at the bottom that shows the five-year average returns of these currencies in dollar terms. There are a lot of very tiny numbers here, so what I've done is I've colored the characteristics investors want in purple, which is high returns and low covariance. And I've colored the characteristics they're trying to avoid in red, low returns and high covariance. In the summer of 95-96, still in the wake of the EMS crisis of the early 1990s, European currencies did not appear to be the place to be, the red patch at the top left-hand corner. Their returns had been low and their covariance high. The place to be was Asia. Follow the purple patch. Asian markets are only offered some high returns, but they were uncorrelated with European and Latin American markets and uncorrelated with themselves, the far right-hand corner. So investors piled in. Not unwittingly, not unthinkingly, but in the intellectual footprints of finance's finest. Now, we all know what happened. Here are the matrices of covariances and returns in the first six months of June 98. Notice the metamorphosis. The purple patch has turned red. Asian currencies are not, are not just delivering highly negative returns, but the most negative returns, the highest volatility and correlation. Now, was this just an unfortunate accident? I have to thank Peter Sullivan for reminding me of the dates here. But back in the mid-1990s, investors began to notice the global equity sectors had low covariances with each other. Notice the spread of purple in between these markets. And so they offered better diversification than country investing. And given their low covariance, investors could ignore countries and focus on high-return global sectors. Notice the purple patches in the bottom line showing the high-return markets. And that is what they did. But what they thought was a portfolio of high returns and low covariances had, by 2000, turned into a very different portfolio. One that was not only going down, as most things were in 2000, but was going down in a much more correlated fashion. The purple patches had reddened. Sectors that were traditionally and economically separate, like financials and technology, or industrials and consumer discretionary, were now acting as one. As investors reacted to the presence of greater diversification in sectors, by chasing after sector bets and avoiding currency bets, sectors became less diversified and countries more so. Year-to-date differences between the best and worst country equity markets are as high as 20% this year. In today's investing, countries are back as a factor. Like country factors, emerging markets have gone from being thrown out as a separate asset class to being the hot investment. Strongly negative and highly correlated returns in 97 and 98 kept investors out, kept investors out of emerging markets. Many emerging market shops lost funds and some closed down. Consequently, while the contagion of the Argentine default 
the largest default in history, has been deep and troublesome in a few places, notably Argentina's neighbors like Brazil and Uruguay, it has certainly been less widespread, much less widespread than the Asian financial crisis, which engulfed some 16 markets before the Brazilian devaluation in January 1999. Relative safety in emerging markets has been born out of past risk. And today, emerging markets as an asset class are outperforming with low volatility and high covariance. This chart looks at returns in emerging markets the, and versus uh, the world markets, uh, with the uh, blue line being developed markets and the green line uh, here being uh, uh, principally Asian equity markets showing some significant outperformance over the past couple of years. I could continue like this all night, but I hope it's already clear that this paradox is robust across markets, sectors, asset classes, and time. Let us pause to summarize exactly what we've seen and highlight the main principles at work so we have a better view of what the solutions might be. I'm not saying that you could not find good fundamental reasons for investors initially turning to Asia in the mid-1990s, or to the global technology sector in the late 1990s, or turning against these assets at different times later. I'm not just saying that correlations and volatilities are unstable, but they're unstable in a very peculiar way. I've presented a profound paradox that the widespread observation that a collection of assets are safe makes them riskier, and the observation that a collection of assets are risky makes them safer. This has interesting investment implications and implications that are more than interesting for the current practice of risk management. This paradox arises because of three aspects of investor behavior. First, investors know that past returns and volatilities and covariances are not fixed, but they view them as a given, as independent to whatever they do, as exogenous. Second, and partly as a result of the collapse of computing costs, investors use similar information, similar technologies, and have similar preferences. And so they end up hunting a similar group of markets. Third, concentrated purchases or sales of markets changes their statistical properties, their likely return, volatility, and covariance. Systemically, Investors' reaction to data about financial instruments that they view as exogenous makes those instruments endogenous. Now, understanding the process that's driving our paradox helps explain why the proposed solutions to risk management mistakes have not worked and cannot work. There have been two principal solutions that have been proposed. The first is to have more elaborate and sophisticated statistical models of risk. In this chart, I show the distribution of five-year covariances between seven pairs of Asian markets between 92 and 97. It's a fairly narrow range of low numbers. Now, today, sophisticated risk managers say this distribution in a crisis may get fatter or be more skewed. They say the distribution is still anchored in the past, but it may contort its shape. 
And every time they fatten their distributions, we see the harried risk manager caught in the glare of the next crisis, complaining that his calculations are thwarted by a once-in-a-thousand-year event. And these once-in-a-thousand-year events, like the dramatic drop in the Korean won in December 97, the Russian default in August 98, the LTCM liquidity black hole in October 98, the Turkish and Argentine financial crises last year, these seem a little bit more frequent than once in a thousand years. And this is because the model is wrong. The future is not anchored by the past. It is a reaction to it. The more investors saw and reacted to the old distribution of returns and correlations, the further away the new distribution will be from the old. This is the new distribution post the Asian crisis. We're not witnessing freakish once-in-a-thousand-year events every few years, but the natural byproduct of a different world than the one risk managers are modeling today. The other main solution to the failure of modern risk management has been the use of stress tests. This is the assumption that the new distribution of returns, volatilities, and covariances will be some repeat of some past crisis or similar to some past crisis. Now, viewing the future as not an average of the past is a step forward, but this is still going to be off mark, given the underlying process we've just observed. If the markets you are in, you currently own, were at the center of the last crisis, the history of negative returns and high covariances would have kept other investors away, making the new distribution safer than the past crisis would suggest. The stress test will overstate your risks. If, on the other hand, and more worryingly, the markets you're in appeared safe during the last crisis, which is perhaps why you're there in the first place, perhaps why everybody else is there, the new concentration of positions, will make the future distribution far riskier than during the last crisis, far riskier than that stress test would warn. Repeating the past crisis on your portfolio today is a distraction. What you need to focus on is how a reaction to the past will shape the future. So what can you do? I will describe how you should treat estimates of covariances. Returns and volatilities can be treated similarly. Consider that covariances between assets in a crisis are made up of two components. The long-run structural covariance between two assets and a cyclical component. The structural element can be estimated by looking at the covariances of economic or corporate data, like current account positions or corporate earnings. This covariance of the fundamentals represents a minimum for the overall degree of covariance of market prices. Next, add the cyclical component. What we're trying to do with an estimate of the cyclical component is compare the impact of strategic behavior and market positioning on future covariance. Ideally, you would have data on market concentration and the cyclical component of covariance would be zero when market concentration is low or high when the overall covariance or high when market concentration is high. Of course, outside custodial databases like the one at State Street, it's hard to find good measures of market concentration. 
However, one of the lessons from the examples I've shown you is you could estimate the cyclical component of covariances using the past, but in precisely the opposite way in which it's done today. Instead of assuming that the future is some positive function of the past, assume it's an inverse reaction to it. So that low covariances in the past mean high covariances today and vice versa. Interestingly, the current practice of risk management assumes a falsehood. Assumes there's no reaction by investors to the data they observe. And this falsehood is revealed every time there's a crisis. It's therefore what economists, the economic theorists would call time inconsistent. Inconsistent practices tend to fall by the wayside over time. Varying co viewing covariances as the product of a structural covariance and the degree of market concentration, on the other hand, would be the right thing to do whatever other investors assumed was going on. It would be time consistent. There is a failure of modern risk management practice. But at its roots, and I do not say this lightly, it is a failure of modern finance. The science of finance takes from physics and engineering the one assumption that does not work in finance, that the players and instruments, or investors and markets, are independent of each other. In a reality of plentiful information, but widespread uncertainty, strategic behavior is rife. What you do changes what I do, which changes what you do. This is mathematically inconvenient. It draws us further into a world of indeterminacy and instability, sometimes called reality. But as John Nash showed us earlier, there are ways of addressing strategic behavior. The solution I propose above to the problem of estimating covariances is not elegant. But the more people start thinking about finance under strategic behavior, the more elegant solutions will surface, I'm sure. I presented a simple and disturbing paradox. The observation that a collection of assets are safe makes them riskier. And the observation that a collection of assets are risky makes them safer. This paradox suggests that beneath all the sophisticated reports produced today, all the gadgetry, traditional estimates of the risks you run when a crisis hits are poor. And there's mounting evidence to support that statement. And of course, the one time you need a good risk management system is when a crisis hits. This paradox arises because of three aspects of investor behavior. Following current finance theory, investors view past returns, volatility, and covariances as independent to whatever they do. Investors use similar information, similar technologies, similar preferences, and so end up hunting a similar group of markets. And three, concentrated purchases or sales of markets changes their statistical properties, their likely returns, volatilities, and covariances. Understanding this process helps explain why the proposed solutions to the risk management mistakes cannot work. What would have a better chance of working is the assumption that market covariances are part structural and part cyclical. And the cyclical component in the future will act in the opposite direction than in the past. 
Modern finance is an elegant description of a world that does not exist. It is an 18th century world of ordered independence, when instead we live in a world of strategic behavior, joining a crowded hunt for that portfolio that had the right balance of risk and return in the past in hope that it would deliver it the same in the future is not futile, it's dangerous. In finance, the future does not look like the past. It is a reaction to it. Thank you very much. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.